Would you open God's precious holy word to John chapter 7? And in our study, we've come to verses 37 through 52. Yet another appeal, another invitation extended by Jesus Christ, our Lord. The time of man does not lack for an appeal from God. Frankly, the Bible is replete with invitations. Christ has made it clear you can't come unless the Father draws you. But we have this commission to seek out disciples, to teach them about Jesus. And our example of making an appeal, though we cannot affect a person's spirit, we can do all that we can do as a channel from the Lord to extend an invitation and to let people know that God Almighty has made something available. that those of us in Christ can be saved. So then, Isaiah 1, come let us reason together. Isaiah 55, come to the water, drink freely from the water. All of those invitations in the Psalms about coming to give thanks and coming through the gates of praise and so forth and so on. Uh, Matthew 11, Luke 9, Christ extends an invitation to people and says, I know you're a heavy burden. Do you have a, you have a burden? But if you'll come to me, I'll give you rest. I'll give you comfort. He invited Nicodemus in John 3 in our study here to come to him. In John 4, he invited the woman at the, to, at the well to come to drink living water. And then later on in that chapter, those who were from Samaria, he spoke to them the words of, of life. Then, of course, in uh, John 6, we saw how he cried out to the people and he invited them to come to him and he said, I'm the bread of life. And in his invitation, he made it clear, you cannot, you cannot be saved unless you partake of the essence of who I am. The Father has sent me and I am the bread of life and you must partake of me. You must eat who I am and drink who I am. Thus telling the people there is no other way. There's no other salvation. This practice of extending his invitation continues. And I'm going to guess that Christ in his three years of ministry as he taught the people was constantly appealing to the people to come to him. That's never changed. Peter gave his great invitation in Acts chapter 4 and the Bible at the very end of it in the Revelation chapter 22 verse 17 
If you are thirsty, drink the water of life without cost. There's no obligation to it. If you want it, come and take it. So the idea of the invitation here is strong in this portion of Scripture. So applicable to you and me today and the work that we seek to do for Christ. So let's just go through this passage beginning in verse 37 of John chapter 7. Now remember, we've been in this a while and, and Christ is in Jerusalem. He's there. It's the, feet, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of three that adult men, Jewish men were required to attend. It's given in um, Leviticus 23. And so it was a, a joyful and wonderful occasion, not just an occasion of fellowship, but a, a high occasion of, of worship as well. Now, in the last day, the great day of the feast, so the feast was a week long, this is the last day. It's the great day of the feast. We'll talk about that. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's break this down a little bit. It's the last day known as the great day of the feast. Here is what all of these thousands upon thousands of people did all week long in the Feast of Tabernacles, of booths, tabernacles. First of all, they would live, they would, it was like a, a camp out, you know, they would, they would make their own makeshift tent to live in. They made it with the shrubs and leaves that, uh, that were indigenous there locally to the land. But the religious leaders led the people in a special ceremony every day, every day of this week. The people were to gather branches and such from around and thousands of them would converge upon the temple area and they would cover the altar in these branches while this was going on, the high priest would take a golden pitcher and he would go through the water gate to the pool of Siloam and he would dip into the water and he would bring it back and he would pour upon the altar the water that he had secured from the pool of Siloam. It was to commemorate, number one, the branches and the booths, the man-made tents, and then the, the, the booth, the, the covering of the altar was to commemorate how God provided for them without fail in their trek from Egypt to Canaan. He gave them everything that they needed. Of course, there was the manna, but the water was to commemorate how God had given them water out of the rock. And that water stayed with them until at last they came to the land of promise. Now every, every day 
when the priest would pour the water, they would recite as a people a portion of, of Isaiah. I think it's found in 11 and, and 12. And in that recitation, they were expressing how joyful it was for them to draw upon the well of salvation. Quoting the, te- the Old Testament, the, the prophet. And then to close out that ceremony every day, the Levitical choir would sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, the Psalms of Hallelujah. It's a glorious and wonderful worship experience every day. But now this is the last day when all of it was very, very special. And the final thing in raising up their hallelujahs in a final commemorative expression of praise to Yahweh who provided for them in their temporary living from Egypt to Canaan, from the place of slavery to the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey, the land of promise. It was a a glorious and wonderful experience to go and be part of this week-long feast. Now, it's the great day. It's the great day when the people finally acknowledge how God had provided not just a place for them to live as they traveled, but provided water, living water for them out of a rock. The high priest pouring out the water from that golden pitcher and the Levitical choir singing the Psalms of Hallelujah. It was very dramatic, very moving. Now look at this. The last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. Now this would be just at the apex of the closing ceremony. Acknowledging water that is drawn from the wells of salvation. The people acknowledging that water, a scarce and valuable commodity in that world and in that place in that day. The people expressing how valuable and wonderful and how saving water was to them. And how God just freely provided it out of a rock. Gave it to them. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he said, that rock is Christ. Just as these things had happened, it was then that Jesus cried out. Now there's that word again. You remember we saw that, we saw that last time. Ekrix. Uh, the, the, the Greek word, it means as loud as he could shout. It was a very powerful, loud voice. He was yelling to the top of his voice. The people were fixated on the grace of God and how 
they were provided for in their lives and how God gave them water when they so desperately needed it such that in their own scriptures they declared that this was water drawn from the wells of salvation with their minds clearly fixed on those things Christ tells them I am that water of life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Three primary verbs here. It's really, it's really the invitation of the gospel itself. Thirst, come, drink. So simple. So easy. No encumbrances. It is all Christ. We come to Christ. We don't come to a ritual. We don't come to a tradition. We don't come to any man-made thing. And we don't invest ourselves from within who we are in any way at all. It is the draw of the Father who draws us to the Son. And we only come to the Son. We just... There's nothing within us. It's just him. And we come to him and we drink freely without cost, the revelator says, to eternal life. This is our message. Here is Jesus Christ, the son of God. He came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. But there is no account too great, no debt too high that he cannot settle, that he will not settle if I just am in him, come to him. The Father draws me to the Son. Everything is taken care of by God. It's a simple thing of faith. For me, this was the great message of Christ. It's easy to see. We've seen it already in John. And we've seen it also when we went through Luke and the others. Christ is teaching the people what the purpose of the law actually is. Namely, to designate us as sinners. We are short of the law. We cannot attain the law. We cannot satisfy the law. We need someone to come along and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The only one who can do that is, of course, God who sends his son. Perfect, virgin-born, sinless Christ who comes for the purpose of saving his own. So then, Christ makes his appeal. The Father will draw as he sees fit. But the appeal goes out broadly. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink. He told the woman at the well, remember a couple of chapters earlier, three chapters earlier? If you drink this water, you will never be thirsty again. 
a drink to eternal life. Take long dregs of this water, all that you want. It's free. It's without cost. Drink it and drink it and drink it as much as you want. It is provided for you if you're thirsty. Come to me. Now, Christ puts together a principle of several Old Testament verses. And the principle comes out like this. The one believing me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out of his belly. Now, he said this concerning the spirit whom those having believed were about to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet was not yet glorified. Now, okay, we're in the fall of the year in the Feast of Tabernacles. About six months later at Passover, Christ will be crucified. Jesus had said earlier, what up earlier, maybe verse 32, 33, he said, the time will come and you'll search me, search for me, but you won't find me. You're too late. And you'll want to go where I am, but you cannot come. That's the, the, the juxtaposition. That's the other end of the invitation, you see. The father sets the qualification, which is his only begotten son. Our life is in him plus nothing. There's nothing else. There's no one else. We must come to Christ and Christ will settle everything for us. Don't struggle with it. Just turn it over to Jesus. Jesus has promised to take care of us. He's the living water that follows us and takes care of us. Paul said... Christ is that rock from whence the water came. Here, John says, he's telling believers that after the day of Pentecost, which actually, okay, so the day of Pentecost is less than a year. We're just a few months away from this occasion right here. The one believing in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out of his belly. You see, we come to Christ and we take a drink of water that follows us forever, really, stays right there with us. This rock from whence the water came is Christ. He's ever and always with us and this water is always there. And when we come to Christ, we're not, we're not jars, we're not containers, we're fountains. What, what happens to us now happens through us. And God uses this miraculously as a, a divine channel of sovereign grace. That flows through believers. Here's what he says. You believers. 
Rivers of living water will flow out of you, out of your belly. When the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit now in our lives. We saw in Ephesians, he's the, uh, he's the pledge. It's a down payment for us, but uh, he's the guarantor of, of our salvation. So not only does Christ assume the responsibility of saving us, he assumes the responsibility via his spirit to keep us saved. And then beyond that, assumes the responsibility of seeing to it that from us flow these living waters. They came into us and they flow out of us. Rivers of living water. The beautiful, wonderful work of the church of whom Christ is the head. He is everything. He is all and in all for us. He He died to save us. He lives to keep us. He's coming again for us and he works through us. Because when we are born anew from above, we have a rebirth of of spirit. The spirit regenerated to the glory of God. God does this. Who among us could even cause ourselves to be born again? We cannot. Only God can do this and God continues to superintend the work. Christ oversees the work in his church. Now this he said concerning the spirit whom those having believed were about to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That people are divided over Jesus does not trouble me. It tells me that God is at work. You come cold turkey with a message from heaven. About a Messiah whose title is a word most people don't even understand. Never heard. About a character whom most people see as a character of history, but most of those people don't understand who he is unless and until they are enlightened by Almighty God. So you come to people with the message as Christ did, only now adapted to our time post-ascension, pre-second coming. And we proclaim to people that without God's salvation and without the Savior whom he has designated and sent, who is namely his only begotten son, without him, there is no hope for the human race. Absolutely none. That everybody is born into sin. Even little babies are in need of a savior. And then we continue with this message 
that only God can convict you and make you understand that you are a sinner and that you are part of a fallen race that, is, that has no hope at all apart from the grace of God. So people listen to this. Some people get uncomfortable. And then you talk about conviction and you preach from the scriptures about the only Savior who there is. And people get uncomfortable. Bless God. Some people get hardened in their hearts. That's a result. That's one result. Others' hearts are broken. Maybe just a few. But there's division over Jesus. There always has been division over Jesus. There is division today over Jesus. We exclaim and proclaim the only thing that the church can teach and preach, and it is this, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and then no one can come to the Father except through Christ. There is no other way to be saved. There is only one God, and he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Anybody else who believes in one God, but yet deny that he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, is unsaved. They are reprobate. So this is our message. It's plain and simple. And it has always irritated the world. It irritates the world today. We've discussed this earlier about how the Pope has recently built this thing. And there are three buildings there. And he has, he has declared along with the uh, main Jewish rabbi and the main whatever he is, imam or something, of Islam that there's just one religion and there's one God. And so at this grand place, a synagogue was built, a church was built, and uh, a mosque was built. And so people are invited to come and worship God in the way that they want to. You see, that is a damnable thing. There is only one way to be saved. That is our message through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the problem is, I don't know why anybody would think that we hate them. The greatest love that could ever be demonstrated was the love that Christ gave out on the cross, giving himself in that horrible death to die even the death of a cross, of the cross, to put away my sin and guilt and cover me with his righteousness Paul writes to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a wonderful thing. Heaven is a wonderful place. Eternal life. <laughs> That's the best benefit of all. There's nothing that can take the place of eternal life. To live forever in God's heaven and to enjoy the glories and graces of God and his presence into the ages of the ages of the ages. This is our message. Come. You know what? You may come from the other side of the tracks, whatever they are. You may come from some dark, deep, demonic religion. I don't know. But I'm going to welcome you to come to Christ. And I'll even let you live next door to me in heaven if you want to. Doesn't bother me a bit. Because we love you. And we don't want to see anyone perish. 
And then we collapse into the presence of a sovereign God. This is the great story, the, the great message, the great teaching of Christ. He came from the Father. The Father gave His Son. Sin is such a terrible thing. It's universal. It, it, it causes even the destruction of the universe at the great white throne. It is a terrible, horrible thing that is remedied only in Christ. Only in Christ. And so Jesus would appeal to how in John 6, remember all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all that the Father gives to me, I will never ever cast him out. I've come to do the will of him who sent me and of all he gives me, I'll raise him up at the last day and not lose a single one of them. Now, Christ says this great truth for those who believe will come through our bellies, the essence of our lives. It cannot help but be so because Christ said so. And in Christ, we're doing things for Christ that we may not even realize are the work of Christ. So the crowd was divided. Some of the crowd, having heard these words, said, this is the prophet. Now that's, a, that's from Deuteronomy. That's Moses. That's his distant, as God inspired him in this Bible book, that's the distant way that he could see the Christ. It's another early messianic term. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Others, however, were saying, well, wait a minute. Is the Christ supposed to come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes out of the seed of David and from Bethlehem and the village where David was? And we already covered that. Of course, Christ did. God raised up Caesar Augustus, in my view, for the singular purpose of recording, actually, officially, the genealogy of Jesus the son of David. So in that day, there, there was no disagreement for those who would actually go and seek it out and search it out. The records in that day of the families were actually kept in the temple. So that's foolish. It's also foolish to say that he didn't come from Bethlehem because everybody knew when the wise men came in and therefore Herod had all those babies killed. So this is very foolish. This is a very foolish response. It's an ignorant response, but it comes from a reprobate heart. Going to argue and debate themselves out of coming to Christ. So there's, there's confusion and there's division. And we just saw that there are some there who are believers who would later receive the Holy Spirit after the glorification of Christ, but so many of them just were indifferent to the whole thing. So, preach Christ and Him crucified. 
See what it did to Paul in his life. If the historical traditions are true, it finally cost him his head. If the, if the traditional histories of the apostles are true, it cost them all everything except maybe for John who was imprisoned and then died later at Ephesus. But to stand with Christ means to oppose the world. The world has all of these ideas and the world has all these trappings. The world wants you to depend upon the world. That's Satan. And that we are in the world in Christ does not mean that we are of the world. So there's division always, but it is proof really of the power of the Father to draw his own to himself. I can't do that. I tell you, I've preached in before rooms full of unsaved people. And if I was a betting man, and I'm not, but if I was a betting man, I would have been a bookie. And I'd have said, okay, two to one, that's going to come to Christ. Three to one, that one ain't going to make a move anywhere. And I got to tell you, I'd have lost everything and then some because God has fooled me so many times when the appeal is made. Because it is the Father who draws them and not me, not us. It is the Father. That's why we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Only Christ. We're helpless. We're helpless except for what Christ will do what the Father will do, how Christ sends the Spirit. And that appeal is still made today by His Spirit. And the Spirit speaks to the hearts of people and I cannot know how God will operate in that kind of thing. But the power of God is always there and always makes that division. According to His grace, and according to his purpose. Now, therefore a division occurred in the crowd because of Christ. Some of them desired to seize him, but no one laid his hands on him. We saw that last time. Then they're not going to be able to until his time is up. Not many weeks hence his time, he will pray. Father, the hour has come. But not now. Still other invitations. We're going to see a couple of others that are really good ones here in John. But no one laid hands on him. Now, I like this part. It's a little, to me, it's a little comedy relief. Therefore, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why didn't you bring him? We sent you out there to arrest this guy and bring him to us so we could kill him. Why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, never a man spoke like this man. 
You ever seen those old silent films of the Keystone Cops? They're running around like rats. And they're supposed to do something and they never can accomplish what they're supposed to do, you know? Well, these were the Keystone Cops. And they couldn't help themselves. Let me tell you. In every other day and in every other way, they are opposed to Jesus. They're just as happy to see him killed as would be the chief priests and the Pharisees. But they're helpless because never a man spoke like this man. Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed on him? But this crowd, not knowing the law, are accursed. Now, that's exactly untrue. If you know the law, you are accursed. There's nothing in the law that can save you. Jesus would point this out, I'm sure. No man ever spoke like this man. Oh, you're deceived. You're deceived. Have any of the Pharisees or rulers believed on him? This idiotic crowd, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know the law. And they're accursed. Nicodemus, remember him? Christ extended an invitation to him in John 3. The one having come to him before, being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge the man unless it has heard him first and knows what he does, does it? They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? See how the devil works. Search and see that no prophet is raised out of Galilee. That's a lie. Jonah? Nahum? Hosea? They're supposed to be the smartest Bible people there. They're so filled with hatred they cannot even understand the Word of God. You cannot understand the Word of God apart from the Christ. You cannot. So the appeal greatly divides the people. It always does and it always will. This is just something that we're equipped to deal with. The Lord deals with it. For so many of us, it even costs us our lives. The division is so great among the people. They're wanting to kill Jesus and finally he will be crucified. But I'm reminded, we'll see it in the Gospel of John. He's praying, and Achilliarch led his troops. Now, Achilliarch commands between 600 and 1,000 troops. And then the temple guards, which have been another, about another 300. Christ is there. His other guys are asleep. <laughs> He's praying. They've come to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. Christ sees them. He walks up to him and said, who do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And they all were knocked down. They fell down. 
They weren't going to take him. He would go. They couldn't take him. He would go with them. Christ said, I've been teaching in, in the temple all this time. Why do you come in the middle of the night? You could have gotten me any time. Well, this is according to the will of God, you see. So Christ, I'm sure, would have spent his days of ministry teaching, preaching, appealing, such that as we've seen in this passage, some were believers and they would receive the Holy Spirit after Jesus was glorified at the time of Pentecost. And they would be used of God. Rivers of water, living water flow out of their bellies. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is how we handle our invitation in these present days. If you're here today and you would come to Christ, or if you're here today and you've come to Christ, but you want to be obedient to baptism, or if you've come today and you want to be a part of this congregation, we have deacons and their wives ready to talk to you about that, pray with you as you exit this room right across the hall as you leave you'll see them just step in there and just say I want to take Jesus as my savior or say I'm saved but I haven't been baptized haven't had the opportunity or say I come as a Christian and I want to be a part of this congregation they'll take care of all those details for you Right now, would you prayerfully stand all over this room?